All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17? We are in week four of a seven-week series called Explore God. And Explore God, we are joining with 900, just under 900 churches in the Chicagoland area. And uh, we are trying to go head-on right after the seven biggest, most difficult questions that non-Christians have about the Christian faith. They also just happen to be the seven questions that most of you do not want anybody to ask you. And so one of my desires is to help you, it is to equip you, it is to encourage you. Um, Also, if you're not a believer, um, every Sunday there are a bunch of people who come to church here and they're trying to wrestle, they're trying to figure out what the whole purpose of life is and have some of these questions answered. So I want to just tell you, you're in really good company. Um, Now the question we're going to be answering this morning is very simple. The question goes like this. um, Is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? Uh, We'll get to that in a minute, but um, one of the things that I want to do with you is I want to encourage you to ask your questions. So at the bottom of all of our sermon slides, you'll see this. It says, got sermon cues, text VC sermon to 555-888. So when you do that, a couple things are going to happen. First is you'll get a text response that will give you a link to a podcast. What we're going to do is Pastor Craig, who is our church planning pastor at Village Church East in Carroll Stream, Pastor Tim, who's our discipleship pastor, um, we're getting together every Wednesday morning, and we're going to a studio and recording the answers and responses to your questions. And so that podcast is going to get released uh, every Wednesday. And so when you text 555-888-VC Sermon to that number, um, not only do you get a response that gives you a link to that podcast, you don't have to hunt for it, it also opens up a text thread. Uh, Whenever you do that now, from then on, what you can do is just write your questions in. You just text it to that number. Um, Once you open that thread up with VC Sermon to 555-888, just keep texting your questions. We will get them all. We go into the studio Wednesdays at 10, so if you turn it in after that, sorry, we're not going to probably get to it for that podcast. But I just want to invite you, bring your questions on. Um, Some of you, you do not want to engage a digital audience. You want to sit in front of a real live human being, and you've got tough questions. Um, Maybe there has been um, no Christian or pastor that you felt has satisfied you with answers, but you're willing to have a conversation. Um, Any of our pastors, myself included, would love the opportunity to sit down with you, especially if you are like wrestling through faith. Uh, I just want to say, bring your questions on. Um, You are in good company because we are a whole bunch of people who all have the same questions. And so I want to invite you into that conversation. Um, I also, and none of our staff and myself, believe that we have the ability to save you, um, make you believe in Jesus, or convince you of much. But at the least, we can open up a really good dialogue, and uh, our hope is that if the God of this universe that we worship is true, he's going to reveal himself to you at the right time. So if you're interested and curious, don't hesitate. Um, Truly would love to engage you. All right, is Christianity too narrow. Um, I need a friend. Um, I, I, I want to invite John Tuck. Are you in the room, John? Somewhere? All right, John's there. Now, John, have I told you what we're going to talk about? No, no I have not. <laughs> John, you're one of my favorite persons to put on the spot. Um, I love it. It makes me, me so happy. I know, lucky you. Happy day. Um, so uh, I did ch- tell John right before the service, hey, bro, I'm calling you up. Don't, don't go home yet. You're coming up in, uh, right at the beginning. So um, John, tell everybody your name. I'm John Tuck. All right, good. 
I love it. All right, so John, we're going to play a little game. The game is called Who is Michael Fueling? Now, as we play the game, this, be fun. Uh, uh, yep. this is not a subtle exercise in narcissism. There's actually a point to the story here. So I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you my iPad, and I want you to read. There's three stories. And uh, the question that Village Church needs to figure out how to answer is, which one is the real, true, objective Michael Feeling? Here you go. Don't delete my sermon. Okay, great. (laughs) One, Michael Feeling was born on May 31st, 1980, to Mary and Dennis Feeling. Michael is married to Brianne. They have three children. Michael is a Christian. Michael loves warm weather, hiking, and donuts. I like that, Michael. That one, that feels, that feels good. All right, what's the next one? Let's see. Two, Michael Fueling was born in Mali, Africa, and was adopted by Australian parents. Michael is a cobbler, a kangaroo hunter, and a cult leader. <laughs> feels true. I like this. This is good. Carry on. Michael and his wives <laughs> have 49 children. In his spare time, he loves to write country music. I Could be like true. I, I know I this, know. this Michael. I know. I know. <laughs> Three. Michael Feeling was born on December twelfth, one two three five A.D. It's twelve thirty-five. I know, but I like the way it's read <laughs> when it said one two three five. <laughs> you know. I don't know if you know how like the, the whole year thing works, but it's yeah twelve thirty-five. Carry on. He was born to Bertha, and his father is unknown. Michael was a farmer and died at the age of thirty-four of unknown causes. Michael was interested in beets and hard liquor. <laughs> I love it. All right, so that, let me... Now, John, here, do you feel like you understand, like you could answer this question accurately? Yes. Yeah, which one is it? I mean, three, obviously. Yeah, three, right? No. The answer is two, of course. Yeah. I want to ask all my wives to come up front. Yeah. <laughs> they all sit back Yeah, there. they're all in the back, uh, that whole back row. It's, that's, that defi- weird. Definitely number one. Yeah, all right, good. So um, how many Michael Fuelings with my DNA are there in existence in all of human history? One. They're going to go one. I don't have a twin, right? It's just me, just Solamente. Oh, no. All right. Uh, so I want you to um, answer a couple questions for me. Um, just think logically. And uh, you don't have to have all the best answers, but I just want to hear some of your initial Got responses. Okay. All right. Are each of these true about me? Each of these stories, are each of them true about me? There are little nuggets mm-hmm. that are true. Yep. But are they true? No. The totality of the story. Nope. Okay. All right, good. Not true. Can each of these stories, is, like, is there a plausible universe where we could put each of these stories on top of each other and they could all be true? Okay, because I couldn't be dead at the age of 34 in the 13th century and then alive currently. So they're actually contradictory narratives, right? Totally. So we're good, all right. Um, what do all of these versions of Michael Feeling have in common? Let's just find some commonality uh, of, of all of them. The name. The name, that's good, good. That's it. So like, are, are they all supposedly male? Oh yeah, they're all male. Are they all human beings? I think so. Yeah, we'll go with... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, we're going to go with plausibly. Okay, Um, They were all alive at one point in time, right? So we have a couple pieces of of commonality here. Now, all right, that's good. I want you to hold that. I want you to hold that conversation in your head. Now, I want you to imagine, okay, Um, I, uh, uh, you know the real Michael. I mean, you're John Tuck. We're very good friends. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, so you know the real man. I want you to imagine somebody comes up to you and they're talking about Michael Fueling, okay? And here's what they say. Listen, I've heard all the stories, the three stories. All Michael Fueling's are basically the same. What do you say? No. That's, what do you mean no? You can't just tell me no. I just told you what I believe. You're not allowed to tell me that what I believe is wrong. 
All right, well, go on. All right, fine. Listen, all of those Michaels are true and real. Mm, they're all real. Kind are they? They're real people, but they're they? true. They're not real. They're not real. Never mind. All right. <laughs> I was like, I mean, they're my said, humans, use your brain, John Tuck. Come on. <laughs> I just make coffee. Jesus. That's the answer yeah. to every question the pastor asks you. Jesus. All right. All right, if you try to convince me one of these Michaels is not real, you're judgmental and a bigot, and we can't be friends. See ya. <laughs> okay? No. Yeah, right. John, it's not loving to tell somebody that their Michael doesn't exist. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's exactly what I would say to him. Uh, John, if it doesn't hurt anyone, then who am I to tell you or somebody else that they've got the wrong Michael? Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, you can sit down. Like literally, that answer at the end was the best because yeah. is, this is how so many Christians feel when you're having a conversation with somebody who is a typical Western American who has just bought hook, line, and sinker into some of the mantras that are just said on a pop culture level, and we're just like, oh yeah, like God's at the top of a mountain, and all the paths like get there eventually. As long as you get to the top, it doesn't matter what path you take. And, and there are all of these mantras. And so I've sat down with many people who speak like this about God. Uh, who are you to tell me that my version of God isn't real or true? And, and it's interesting because uh, it's getting more and more heated to the point where um, you are now a judgmental bigot if you tell somebody that there is a plausibility that the God they worship isn't not just real, it doesn't exist, and it was manufactured by the art and the imagination of the minds of people, right? And, and so that gets very, very um, offensive. Now, here, here's what I want to tell you. I want to I make this very clear. When it comes to God and when it comes to Michael Fueling and this DNA, when it comes to you, okay, I, I want you to just hear this. Either one of these stories is right, or all are wrong. There's actually no other option for the thinking, logical person. So you think about the stories about Michael. You have because they are all fundamentally contradictory. They cannot simultaneously exist and be true at the same time. Either one of them is right or all of them is wrong. And when we, when we take this discussion to God and religion, um, let me just lead for you with this. Either... One of them is right, or all of them are wrong. And here's why. Because it's very common for you to hear, listen, all religions are basically the same. Let me tell you who would never, ever, ever say those words. A devout Muslim. A devout Christian. A devout Buddhist. A devout Jew. Uh, The only people who speak like that are the ones who step back and they look at religion from a distance, but they're not actually deeply involved in it. Because if you're a good, faithful Muslim, here's what you know, Islam and Christianity are so fundamentally contradictory, it is impossible for them both to be true. It is as possible for them both to be true as there is for there to be a 13th century Michael Fueling, who was a beet farmer and loved hard liquor, as it is me, this guy right here standing right in front of you. They're very different stories, but one of them is true and one of them is not. But they cannot both be true. 
When you think about uh, 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 Buddhism, right? Uh, Buddhism cannot simultaneously coexist with Christianity. Both worldviews and narratives, objectively, logically, scientifically, in every way humanly possible, cannot both be true and accurate simultaneously. It is absolutely impossible. So Ravi Zacharias uh, is a, a defender of the Christian faith, and I love what he said. He says this, Culture says, quote, All religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. By the way, this is the mantra. This is the idea. They're all the same. They're all basically saying the same things. Love God, love each other, good people go to heaven. That's kind of the one-on-one mantra. But here's what he says. The truth is this. All religions are fundamentally different and superficially the same. All the Michael feelings in the story have commonalities. They're alive, they're males, right? Uh, but, but, but they're not the same person. It's not the same story. In fact, when you dig even deeper, all of them aren't even real and true. Only one of them happens to actually objectively be true. And so uh, you might be saying, okay, Michael, you're coming out guns blazing on this sermon. And I want to tell you why I need to come out guns blazing on this subject. Because the vast majority of people, the younger you are especially, who grow up in Western American culture, um, have this cultural mantra implanted into their brain that all religions are basically the same, and God's at the top of a mountain. It doesn't matter which pathway you take as long as you get to the top. That is, that is actually so deep in the American psyche that it is assumed to be true, and it is rarely, if ever, challenged. In fact, to challenge that is to put yourself in the category of a judgmental bigot, and that's not at all what anybody wants to be seen as, okay? And, and so here's what I have to do. I have to actually get you to a place where you are willing to consider, even just for a moment, that it is impossible that two contradictory worldviews and realities can coexist. Uh, And to be honest with you, as long as you believe two things can coexist that are impossible to coexist, I don't know that I can have a really great conversation with you. Uh, Many people have this blind belief in these truisms and and mantras. And what I want to do is say, can we just challenge that? Can we just kind of go after that? Because maybe, maybe it's not accurate. Maybe it's not just accurate, it's impossible. Maybe it's not just impossible, it's illogical. And so what I have to do in the beginning and the front end of this is say, um, listen, um, I, I need you to get to a place where you can at least just acknowledge it is impossible for two opposing and contradictory realities to both be simultaneously true. It is not possible that Islam and Christianity are both true. It is not possible that Hinduism and Christianity are both true. It's not possible that Judaism in its purest form and Christianity as we understand it through the word of God are both actually true. It's it's just not possible. And so when we get to those foundations, we can say, oh, wow. Like, Like actually this idea that all religions are the same, that's actually an impossible, illogical, contradictory, unscientific, and borderline, you know what, like, I probably haven't thought about it to the degree that I need to, to say something as objective about a subject so huge. So what I want to do with people regularly is say, listen, this subject matter is of enormous consequence personally, and we cannot be thoughtless as we approach it. One of my encouragements to everybody is to dig, ask questions, think, challenge, 
think, ask the hardest questions. This is uh, uh, the Christian tradition. Uh, we, we stand on the shoulders of thousands of years of Jewish scholars and Christian scholars who leaned into the hardest theological, biblical, philosophical questions, and Christians don't put up with trite truisms and mantras that make us feel good. Analogies like God is at the top of the mountain, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you follow a pathway up and you get there at the end of the day, that feels good for my heart. It's like a big hug to my heart, but the more I think about it, it's like stabbing my brain with a knife because my brain knows it's not true. My brain knows that it's actually just not true. It's actually 100% impossible. So uh, we get to this place where we have to come back and say, listen, humanity, forget about village church and Christians, either one religion is true or they're all wrong. Either one of them is true or all the ones that we're aware of and know of are all wrong. And the question that, that I think humanity needs to ask is not how can they all be true, but the question we really need to ask is which one is true? Which version of God is the accurate one because they cannot all simultaneously exist? I wrote this down because I wanted to say it correctly. There is only one true faith system because there can only be one reality. There is only one truth about God because only one version of God can actually be real. There is only one way to said God because there's only one reality. So I want to introduce you to our concept. Um, many of you are familiar with it, at least through experience, but here's the name, religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says this, it's a belief in two or more religious worldviews as being equally valid and acceptable. Uh, you double-click on it, you go a little bit deeper. It's a theory that there is more than one ultimate reality. Here's my issue with religious pluralism. I get, I get the draw to it because it makes you really nice. That's your truth. You be you. You do you. That's what you think. No big deal. I don't want to impose on you. I get that. That's, I get that that feels really good it also makes people like you a lot. So if you're a people pleaser, uh, religious pluralism is like your best friend. You're like, oh, everybody likes me. I'm not making any, any waves. I get that. My problem with it is that it's impossible. It just doesn't exist. And religious pluralism is adorable from a distance until you get too close to a religion to realize they're all exclusive. They're all exclusive. They all have truth claims that necessarily require them to not be compatible with any other system of religion. So as we pull back here, I, I, I want to put this idea on the table because it's not a new idea. In fact, when we get to Acts 17, you're going to see an ancient version of religious pluralism uh, right before you. Now turn with me, Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. Some of it will be on the screen. Some of it won't track with me. Acts chapter 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Them is going to be other Christians who are coming there to help share the truth of Jesus Christ uh, with a major global city that has yet to hear about Jesus. So now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. And I've had a really similar, I just think, personal experience with this when you sit down with people, uh, and their idols so much nowadays aren't as much stone and gold fashioned and iron or whatever, but it's, 
It's these ideas and these worldviews, and I hear them talk about it, and my spirit isn't angry. It's just so uneasy when I hear people say stuff like, uh, if God was good and all-powerful, then um, the, and he could stop evil and doesn't. Well, I, I, I'm an atheist because if he could, that doesn't even make sense. And I'm like, you're buying that? Like, that's your reason to walk away from God? Like, go deeper. Don't run away from that. Go deeper into that. Or God's at the top of a mountain and always get you there. Like, I hear people, and they mean them. And they're not dumb people. They are not insincere people. Uh, uh, they truly believe what they're saying. But my heart is provoked because I just want to say sometimes, can we just can we sit down and have a really honest conversation? Because I think your ideas don't stand scrutiny. Like, I think if I challenge them a little bit, they start crumbling to pieces, and you don't want to base your eternity on an argument that crumbles under the weight of just something as simple as logic, do you? No. He goes on and says, so he reasoned, Paul did, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are Greek schools of philosophical thought, very intelligent people, um, also conversed with him, Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That's, that might be some of you. You're like, what is this babbler saying here, right? Uh, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the, what? Resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. This is the spirit that I wish so many non-Christians would have about other faiths. And not, not just Christianity. I would tell people, like, dig. Dig into world religions. And I think you're going to find, ultimately, one of them stands the actual test of historical, logical, and moral scrutiny. And that's going to be Judeo-Christianity as we understand it. But some people have to go through that process. They have to uncover and dig. And I think you're going to land right where you did, which is going to be that the Word of God is an unbelievably reliable, true, life-giving, awesome document given by God. I think, actually, with enough time and research, you're going to see something unique and beautiful about it, second to every other religion. But this is the heart. This is the attitude that I just so want to draw out and encourage and say, if you're not a Christian, you need to dig in. It's not good enough with questions of this level of weight to just say little mantras and truisms and cross your fingers and hope that God is at the top of some proverbial mountain and it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you do it. There's too much at stake to just cross your fingers and hope that's true. Verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. This is like the male gossip area, right? So verse 22, we'll put this on the screen. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, here's what he says, men of Athens. So Paul's going to talk. I want to give you a little bit of context that you need, you need to know. Uh, Paul, again, is uh, the guy who wrote actually much, many of the books of the New Testament. Um, hands down, I would say, the most influential Christian in all of human history. Um, Paul had a really interesting background because he was half Jew and half Christian. Um, as a Jew, he was actually trained under, under the probably greatest leader, thinker, and rabbi of the day. The guy's name was Gamaliel. Gamaliel was like the man. Everybody trusted, loved, and respected 
Gamaliel. And for Paul to be under this guy's tutelage was like one of the greatest ends that, that a man could have. And so uh, what happens, though, is, is he's also half uh, uh, half non-Jewish, if you will, Gentile, which means he's given access, actually, um, to a whole bunch of religious systems and conversations that, as a pure Jew, he probably never would have. Uh, what happened with Paul is that he inevitably met the resurrected Jesus, and he could no longer deny the one objective true reality that God is real, and his name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit revealed in Jesus Christ. He couldn't deny it any further, any longer. It was so real and objective that he had to let go of every other plausible religious system. In fact, he had to walk away from Gamaliel as his mentor, uh, as his rabbi, and that was probably one of the most probably uh, difficult decisions of the man's life. Uh, He devoted his entire life to making sure that everybody knew that Jesus was not a dead man in the ground, but resurrected, and he witnessed him. And so that's his world. That's his passion. Uh, They're in the Areopagus, which is a place of debate. It's also a place where trials would happen, where people would be tried for murder or or lesser crimes. Uh, It would inevitably, by the Romans, be called Mars Hill after after the god of war. And so uh, this is a really interesting place with a lot of history. And so, of course, Paul goes here, and he wants to talk to these men. Now, what I need you to understand about Paul is that he's not being like the bullhorn guy who sits on the corner and he's just preaching his heart out and maybe even saying some really offensive things to people. This is actually a place where he's being welcomed to say new ideas. And so he's going to give them kind of the totality of the most important aspects of, of Christianity in a few short words. Verse 22, he goes on, he says this, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, ancient religious pluralism. Uh, They love all different kinds of ideas, and the irony that you'll see about ancient religious pluralism and modern religious pluralism is that they love everything except for Christianity. Uh, It's like so funny to me that they're like, it's all good, it's all going to the same place, you're a Christian. No, it's just a weird, weird uh, dynamic that goes with this. But in a pluralist society, if you're religious, so we can hear me, you're right. If you're religious, you're correct until you impose yourself onto us. I also want you to notice something really, really special about the Apostle Paul. Uh, The Apostle Paul is super respectful to these men. Uh, He does not bash their worldviews. He's very actually kind And I think by the end of this, if there are people who reject him, it's not because of Paul, it's because of the message. Verse 23, he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So you're in a polytheistic world, And one of their greatest fears was that they would miss worshiping a god. And what if they didn't know the god was there, and then there was some cosmic war where the unknown god that you hadn't been worshiping usurps and beats the god you are worshiping, and then the unknown god looks and sees you weren't worshiping him, and so the unknown god, who is trite and small in thinking, of course, retaliates against you, makes your life incredibly difficult, kills all of your agricultural products, and then actually like, makes your life terrible, and then you lose your children, right? I mean, that's your fear. It's like the, the downward spiral of you can't get on this God's bad side. And so here's what they're like. They're like, we might have missed somebody. So in case we miss somebody, we're going to offer offerings. So if there is that cosmic battle, we're going to be, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be on that God's good side. 
Verses 24 and 25, I think, uh, I just love these verses, and I want you to see these because I'm going to spend probably the most amount of time here. But what Paul does is he contrasts the um, pagan Greek gods, if you will, uh, with the one true God, the only actual God who exists. And it is an unbelievable uh, message that he gives to these people. And I want you to just soak it in and be encouraged by it. He starts off and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So Paul's God made everything. And here's, here's the implication right, right off the top. If your gods exist, my gods made them. <laughs> Which is really funny, you know? Like, it's like talking to, like, uh, like I just imagine talking with a, a sincere Muslim who loves, um, loves God, and I say, FYI, if Allah exists, it's because my God made him, right? <laughs> and you, you can just already see, like, at the beginning, the conversation's like, all right, this is getting, this is getting personal. Verse 24, he goes on, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, so it's like Paul is saying, mm, if you guys do exist, it's not just that like my God's made them, my God made them, but my God is like stronger than them and rules over them. So whether or not your gods are physical or spiritual or whatever it is, my God wins. Like in a battle between your God and my God, yours is going to lose like every time. By the way, your gods aren't real. But other than that, like, my God's gonna, my God's gonna win. He goes on to verse twenty-four, and, and it gets actually more almost ridiculous through the ears of these Athenian uh, pagans. He says, "My God does not live in temples made by man." So here's what I imagine happens. I imagine there's like a little bantering. Okay, imagine like the English Parliament, if you will, and uh, and so here's what I imagine happens. Somebody chimes in and says, huh, "Is it is it live in a temple?" Okay, Paul then where does he live, moron? Like, you don't even know you doesn't live in a temple. That's ridiculous. Like, in their, brain, their brains, like, a God who doesn't live in a temple, like, is not worthy of worship. Like, of, of course he lives in a temple. How could he not? Here's what Paul's saying. Oh, my God is invisible and outside of space, time, matter, dimensions, and, like, all of your little, trite, little versions of God, they're actually pretty laughable. The world, the world is my God's temple, <laughs> right? The universe, the stars, and he's just kind of slowly, subtly going after them. In fact, uh, this idea of the Christian God being invisible is what led to the early accusations of Christians being atheists. This is how uh, the polytheistic pagan religions viewed Christians. You, you serve an invisible monotheistic God? That's ridiculous. And so they were called atheists almost as a joke. Verse 25. By the way, nor is he served by human hands. What do you mean he's... He doesn't need us. Like, like, the gods need us. They need our worship. They need our gifts. They need our sacrifice, right? And, like, and here's what Paul's saying. My God's emotions don't go up and down with you and your trite little things and your gifts. Like, my God is he's stable. He's the creator of all things, the king of the universe. If there were other gods, he's the ruler over them. Like, like I'm sorry, my God's just not trite and small and, 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 like your gods are. And then he says at the end of verse 25, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then, and then finally he just says, oh, by the way, like the reason you're breathing is because he permits it right now. Like that's how in control of everything he is. And then I imagine again, some, um, some Epicurean responds and says, okay, Paul, when you said everything 
What did you mean by everything? Okay, I get that uh, he gave me life and breath. Okay, I'll buy that. You, you serve the God who created human life. Fine. But when you say everything, what do you actually mean? Verse 26. He made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth, having, by the way, determined allotted periods, like how long nations and people can live, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, how big the nations can be, how big uh, your property can be. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what he tells them. My God is so in control that the reason you live on the quantity of acres you do is because he permitted it. The reason you're alive today is because he permitted it. In fact, the number of days that you're alive, he's permitted it. Let's get bigger. Nations. Nations rise and fall at the will of God. Like, you just, everything. He ultimately sets limits on every human, every person, every nation, every government, and he does not let them go beyond those limits. So like, yes, not just your breath, but everything you have is actually from him. And and then he actually tells why God puts these limits and these boundaries, and he puts these limits and these boundaries that humanity should seek him. He poses limits on people's lives to bring us to the end of ourselves that we would seek God. Every boundary, every limitation, everything he allows, ordains, or permits ultimately comes to this end that we would get to the end of ourselves and that we would seek for God. Uh, Imagine him looking at them and saying, listen, my pagan Athenian friends, you know as well as I do that men of old made up the stories of your gods. They penned their narrative, they penned the details, they decided on the... Uh, categories of worship and the boundaries of what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do. And I think you guys know, as well as anybody else, that these gods, like you created them. Um, let, me, let, me, let me flip this story for you for a minute. The real God created you. You wrote the stories of your gods and all their backstories and how they got to where they were at. God writes his own story and God writes your story. You can't make up God. God is. And now God is determining reality. Why? Because there's no other reality. Even better, my God wants to be found by you. My God wants to be found by you. Like He's he's structuring the world in such a way that humanity gets to the end of themselves and gropes for God. That's what he's doing. Verse 28, in his strategy, he goes on, and he, I love how he just pulls out. He says, listen, everything you believe isn't wrong, right? Um, in other religions, there are true things that are being said, but the narratives themselves, the worldview is false. But he says this, it, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. These are Greek poets who have said these things, and he's saying, listen, these are true. We are God's offspring, like, like, you're not all wrong, but there's a lot of things that need to be clarified here. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. By the way, here's a, just a quick way to figure out if your God is not real. If you made him, he's not real. Good? All right, carry on. But truthfully, though, that was... Okay, so we say that, 
they believed that when they fashioned a god, it was real. It was just like this cultural mantra and thing they just did and they believed and they never challenged it. Like, do you know that piece of wood will rot and burn in the fire? Does that mean your god is gone? Like, they didn't think about these things. They just lived at a surface level because it was easier. Because to think too deeply about pagan religion would be the necessary undoing of it. And then to leave paganism uh, in this time would be like to leave your... It's like denying reality for them. The problem is it was all man-made. It was all man-made. And here's what he says. An image formed by the, what, art and imagination of man. Like, he's even talking to them as if they know deep down inside that their religions are, were formed by the art and the imagination of men who came before them. And then I love this. God holds your breath. Oh, no. Sorry, this is my nose. God holds your breath and your life together. This is, this is so beautiful and so perfect. Like, the real God holds you. The real God holds everything together. God holds your breath, your life together. Verse 30. The times of ignorance... I want to be clear. He's not talking about stupidity. He's talking about ignorance. Ignorance is what you don't know something you need to know. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Like, if you're ever sitting with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, do you ever, like, lead with this? God commands you to repent now. (laughs) Like, oh, hello, forceful. Like, that's powerful. Got it. Um, but this is, this, is, this is an open forum he's in. He's able to talk freely and candidly. And this is, this is the reality. That there is one worldview that is objective and true and real. And to repent here means to leave behind your false notions of reality and to bring your mind and your life to the true reality, the objective reality. Not the reality that was birthed out of the art and the imagination of men's minds, but the reality that was revealed to us by the one true God and to align your mind and your life with that. And he says, listen, the time is now. And now God has been very patient, but now with the coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, there is an urgency to this. And so I want to look at you and just say, hey, if this reality is true, you don't have the time to punt the discussion for another season of life. Verse 31, why do you need to repent? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I think if you're not a Christian, uh, you are obligated logically based on the weight of the, of the, the discussion and the concepts of eternal life to study the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because all of Christianity hinges on this. In fact, uh, he doesn't even try to convince them of the authority of God's word or a million other doctrines. He goes right to the resurrection as if the resurrection is so essential, so foundational, so key, that if this isn't real, then objectively Jesus is a dead guy in the ground and we should all leave. And so one of, the, one of the great things about this is that there are people on their way to Athens who have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have witnessed and met and talked to the resurrected Jesus. And Paul is one of these guys who his entire life changed because he encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. But I think if you're not a believer, like this is a moral obligation at this time in history that you need to 
figure out whether or not the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is legitimate. Because if it is, it requires a change of worldview and how we understand our current reality. It's massive. So what do you do when you're presented with the good news of Christianity? There's, there's really two, two responses. And here's the first one, and here's what he says. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Of course. Like, this is completely understandable. I've sat down with a bunch of people who, who have said, you believe in a fairy tale God? Do you also believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? And I'm like, well, no, they're actually categorically very different things. And, uh, you know, like, it's a little offensive, but all right, cool, you know. Um, but there are some people, when they hear it, their heart is not ready to have their entire version of reality undone and then to change. I do think, I've said this to you often, Phil Church, but um, be very, very sensitive as you ask people to trust in Jesus, as you present what you and I would believe would be the objective version of reality, because if it's true, it's probably for most people going to require that they undo their entire perspective of how they thought the world worked and changed. And that's really, really hard to do. You think about this from the perspective of, of a mom and a dad. Um, imagine you're a dad and you don't believe in Jesus and you're not bad intentioned. You're leading with what you know and what you believe to be true and you've raised your children your whole life telling them, we don't know what God's name is. Just be a good person. If you're good, you'll get to heaven. And, and that's all you've known. Again, not one ounce of bad intention as you say that, right? But then imagine you're 45 years old, your kids are in high school, and you realize that Jesus Christ is the true God. You realize that that is reality, and what you had been telling them their whole life actually wasn't just false, it was misleading. Now imagine the conversation where you have to sit back down with your children and say, my whole life, here's what I've taught you. And what does a dad want? A dad wants to be trusted and respected, the authority. A dad wants a voice in your life, right? Uh, And when a dad has to come to you and say, all of your life you've heard the same message, but I have to tell you that I was wrong. I I want you to just understand the weight in this time and this culture of what we're asking when we tell somebody, believe in Jesus. It is a rewriting of everything that they understand to be true and real about this world. But if he is truly resurrected from the dead, we can't ignore it. I would rather tell everybody I was wrong and realign my life than reject truth and go to hell. And that's what's at stake. And this is why I can't tell you how many times um, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, I'm just not ready. I I, I just don't want to be that guy. I don't know. Like they'll believe in their head, but not ready for the cost of changing their worldview and telling people. And I just want to say, listen, I get that it feels hard now, but trust me, like there's way too much at stake to let our pride, because we don't want to be seen as wrong, like get in the way of doing what is true and good and right. And yet I sit with people on a regular basis, and that is the greatest fear. It's not, do I believe? It's, will I trust him? A lot of people believe, but to trust him is different. Some mocked, but others said, and this is, this is my, my hope and my heart for any religious pluralist who is willing to think, we will hear you again about this. Like, I don't expect for a moment that my preaching is going to change your mind. But I do hope is that I help you rise above the cultural mantras and maybe challenge you to be a thinking person and that you would be willing to put any worldview or narrative on the line if there is a better one that is more accurate and truthful to reality. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, the implications are staggering. So what? 
Two final so what's. Um, Christians, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Number one, we need to watch out for mindless cultural mantras. We are all tempted toward them. They are inside of all of us. This is our heart culture. This is the, uh, we are soaking in the same media as the rest of the world. We're in the same conversations. We're reading the same news. We're, we're, we're getting all the same messages. And there are these little trite truisms that just, again, they feel like a warm hug to your heart. Oh, good people go to heaven. If you're just good enough, it'll be fine. God's at the top of a mountain. Like, there are all these things that feel good, but when you kind of double-click on them and you go deeper and you uncover, you realize they don't stand the test of scrutiny because they're not actually true. They more just numb you out so you can go on with the rest of your life, indulge your life, and you don't have to deal with these realities. But if they're not true, we got to figure out what's true. And there cannot be more than one reality. The, the religious pluralist mantra has to die because it's, not, it's just mindless. It's not even helpful. It's not even interesting. Like if I told you, hey, come to my house. Here's six maps. I hope they get you there. They're all true. And one takes you to Timbuktu and the other takes you to, to Israel. Like, I'm sorry, but all these maps leading in such different directions cannot all simultaneously be true. And so we just need to, we need to get to a place as believers and even as non-believers where we just, we are not as thoughtless and mindless because there's too much at stake. Uh, number two, finally, the scandal of Christianity, you're probably thinking, Michael, talk about being Christianity being too narrow. I, I'm getting there. <laughs> the sermon has just begun. The scandal of Christianity is not, why is Christianity so narrow? That is not the problem. Why is there only one Michael? Because there's only one Michael. Why is there only one way? Because there's only one way. Why is there only one God? Because there aren't any others. Like, there's nothing I can say to you about the question that's going to make you feel better about it. Like, why do you only have one wife? Why do you only have one husband? Why do you only have three kids? It's just the way it is, right? Like, there are just some facts that are. And so here's what, here's what happens. Why is Christianity so narrow is the scapegoat question. It's the, it's the easy pop cultural mantra that just says, oh, Christianity's too narrow and you're bigoted and judgmental. I'm not going to deal with it. Everybody's narrow. Every major religion is narrow. Even, even your, 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 your pluralism is narrow to a degree. Like, that's not the problem. Here's the question I think people should be asking. This is how I know somebody has gotten past just wanting to ask a question to push away the subject so they have to deal with it. Here's the question I think they should be asking. Why is Christianity so wide open? That's where the scandal is. So you're telling me that the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to 100% cleanse and forgive Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, responsible for the deaths of 100 million image bearers, people of God. You're telling me that the blood of Christ is able to cover the sins of Genghis Khan, Wikipedia, this guy, insanely evil, terrible. There's even like something called the Khan gene that a, a percentage of all people from an Asian background are actually related to him because he sired so many children by killing their husbands, taking their wives, and destroying whole people groups. Unbelievably evil atrocities done at the hands of Genghis Khan. Crazy. Michael, you're telling me that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is able to cover those guys' sins. So you're telling me that if those men trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they're going to be in heaven forever redeemed, glorified. You're telling me that's, that's happening? That's where the scandal is. If you want to get mad, get mad there. That's where I want your anger. 
Uh, many of you know or heard of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dahmer. Cannot speak to the actual legitimacy of his conversion. Um, but it is said that Dahmer trusted in Christ. And I want to read to you a, a portion of an article from uh, Christianity Today. By God's grace, an atheist, pedophile, and mass murderer repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Uh, Roy Ratcliffe was the preacher turned prison minister who baptized Jeffrey Dahmer. He discovered him through this deep sense of grace that flies in the face of our compunction to condemn. Uh, Another professor said this about Dahmer's conversion. If Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. The scandal of Christianity is that Jeffrey Dahmer can come to the foot of the cross and his sins can be covered. Now imagine, you're the mom and you're the dad of his victims. How much more the scandal. What do we want? Justice. And the fact that that God would give Jeffrey Dahmer salvation, we fail to understand, A, the magnitude of the blood of Christ, number one. Um, number two, we, we, we fail to understand the weight of our own sin. There's something amazing that's going to happen. You're going to get to heaven one day if you've trusted in Christ, and you're not going to be comparing how good you are to Jeffrey Dahmer. You're going to sit before a holy God and be awestruck that you're even allowed to exist. So we get to this place as believers where we just say, listen, I appreciate the question. Why is Christianity so narrow? Narrow, fine. If you want to ask that, great. I don't want to answer it. It's narrow because it's narrow. It's narrow because it's reality. It's reality because it's true. This is, why I, this is where I want you to feel. And then I can look at somebody and say, do you know that the shed blood of Christ is also able to cover your sins as well? It, it is the most powerful force the blood of Christ. It is unbelievable what it is capable of. And some people have a hard time getting it, and I understand that because um, in the economy of God, he has deemed it that sin must be paid for by blood. You may not like that, but again, you don't determine reality. He does, so too bad. But he's also loved us so measurably that he has offered that justice would be accomplished in one of two ways, that either we will pay for our sins in hell or Jesus can take our sins on the cross for us in our place. That whatever happened on the cross was so unique and different. This wasn't just a dead guy who got executed. It was God in the flesh. And the weight of what happened, the magnitude of what happened, was so powerful that the sins of Adolf Hitler could be covered by the blood of the cross. Like, we failed to understand it. And I can't tell you how many men, particularly, I've never actually sat with a woman who said this, men who have said to me, I am unforgivable. I am too deep. The blood of Christ could never, ever cover what I've done. Do you know what I've done? I've heard it in so many different ways. And I just look at them and say, you have massively underestimated the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to objectively, with finality, cover your sins and redeem you. Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Right now, the Jesus in your mind is little. The real Jesus is big, and he is able to save. So will you do it? And so I come before you, many of you are here, and you believe, and you are, 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 are awestruck by the fact that God would save you. And my desire in this sermon is to help you, it's to encourage you, but also, again, to bring you to a place of unbelievable gratitude that you, you, a sinner like you and me, like the blood of Christ could cover our sin. Some of you are here, and 
you do not know what to do with what you just heard. You're just like, what? Like, you're still wrestling with Dahmer in heaven, right? And you're feeling like the professor who says, well, if he's there, this whole system is unjust. And I, I'm, just, I'm just here to tell you, like, I would love to press deeper into that with you. We as a church would love to invite those questions and love to invite that wrestling match that you need to have with the Lord and the word of God and these ideas. Like, don't run away from them because they're hard. Run into them. Don't run away from God because you're afraid of what might be. Run into him because it will be one of the greatest gifts that you are able to get. And so I just my strong encouragement is wherever you're at in this whole process, um, lean into the questions. Believers in Jesus Christ, one last encouragement. You're going to meet really terrible people in your life. And you're going to believe they're so far from God. And history is littered with evil people who meet Jesus Christ and are covered by his blood. And so this is my expectation. There is no one too far from God. And this is what history and the word of God tells us. And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you and just go before the Lord. And then we're going to celebrate communion, this thing that is here to remind us of what God has done in history. Father, I am in awe that you would pursue us. Jesus, I'm in awe that you would become flesh and take the full weight of our sin. I know, I think, doctrinally what happened on the cross, but I don't know that I have the categories to get my mind around a wrath so powerful that it could apply to every human on earth who might come to faith in you. Whatever happened on the cross, Jesus must have been a nightmare beyond anything we could even like wrap our brains around. So on behalf of every believer in this room, I want to say thank you that you did that for us so that we would never have to do it. We couldn't endure. We couldn't do it. Father, I know there's some in this room who are still just wrestling. God, I pray that you, the one true, real God, would just reveal Jesus to them. Like you did with Paul, like you did with so many of us, in a way that is undeniable. Lord, as we remember what you did for us, um, thank you. Fill us with gratitude. We become numb. We become numb to the gospel and the weight of what you did for us. Fill us with gratitude again and, and awe and, and wonder. We love you and we remember what you did for us now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.